Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. We are uh, this morning going to look at a passage that I think is uh, relevant and connected uh, to where we are this morning. Uh, Right here in the midst of Advent, uh, which we all, uh, we've said, is a time where we acknowledge uh, the fact that this world is broken, right? That this world is not yet uh, what it will be, that we're awaiting a Savior uh, to finish what he started in his first coming. Uh, And in the midst uh, of a world like that, we sometimes live with questions, right? The questions of why and and what God's doing in the midst of our waiting. And so uh, this morning, as we continue our Advent series, which we've called Long Expected, uh, from the great hymn of uh, lament and hope, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 1. And so if you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Scripture reading, Matthew 11, uh, verses 1 through 6, and then verse 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there uh, to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John, that's John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. So Jesus uh, here in verse 11 describes John the Baptist by saying, among all of the people born of women, there's never been anyone greater than John. Now, if you are keeping track at home, uh, born of women is everyone. Right? Everyone who's ever been born on earth has been born of a woman. That's right. <laughs> and Jesus says, of all of those people, of all of everyone, there's never been someone better than John. There's never been someone more faithful, more hopeful, more righteous than John the Baptist. Jesus, when it comes to John the Baptist, Jesus was a fan. He thought the world of John. He lifted up John as an example of what faith looks like. And yet, in our story uh, this morning, John, this greatest of those born of women, is wrestling with some deep questions. He's been arrested by Herod. He's in prison. He's in an imprisonment that is eventually going to lead to his being beheaded by Herod in a mix of power, madness, drunkenness, and lust. 
his head given to Herod's stepdaughter as a reward for her dancing. John is suffering. John is hurting. John is questioning. And so he sends to Jesus a question. Are you the one who we've been waiting for? Are you the long-expected one, or should we be looking for somebody else? John, this paradigm of faith, when faced with suffering, is left with questions. He's left with doubt, even. And I, for one, am grateful for this, because it shows us that faith and doubt, faith and questioning, are not forever separate. Right? They're not the yin and yang of the spiritual life never to meet. Right? Instead, doubt, questioning, is a normal part of faith. Every one of us, when we encounter suffering, are prone to these questions. Why? If Jesus is who he says he is, why am I in prison? Why is this happening to me? I remember going... Uh, over to visit with Daryl and Tessa the day that they got Aiden's diagnosis and sitting there with you guys in tears and in questions. I'm not going to get into all of the questions. They were normal questions that any parent would be asking in the midst of this. But as a pastor, I felt like I was on holy ground because here were two people who were asking hard questions, who were wrestling with doubt, who were wrestling with all of it. And yet in the midst of it, it was an example of faithful questioning. What's God going to do in the midst of it? Where is he in the midst of it? And friends, there will come a point in your life where you bump up against those questions if you haven't yet. And we need to have a faith that enables us to ask questions of God, to bring our questions to God, instead of taking those questions and allowing them to form a wedge between us and God, growing slowly colder towards God, more and more angry towards God. Our questions will either draw us closer to him or drive us further away. And the hope of this story, the hope that we see lived out not only in Daryl and Tessa's lives, but in so many of the lives of members of this church and other people, Christians throughout history and around the world, is that our questions and our suffering can actually bring us closer to God. That we can come out of the other side of suffering and in the midst of suffering, knowing God, in a different way than we did before we entered in. And so we're just going to look briefly at what John the Baptist knows about what he asks and how Jesus responds. John asks his question because he knows something, right? He knows enough about the storyline of the Bible to know that it's not supposed to be this way. Right? He knows enough about the extravagant promises of God's kingdom to know that when the kingdom comes, there will be healing, there will be freedom, there will be joy, there will be no more sin, no more suffering. Right? What are we seeing when we sing joy to the world? He lives to make his blessing flow as far as the curse is found. Right? That when the kingdom comes, everything that's broken will be made right, everything sick made whole, perfect justice, perfect peace brought into the world. And John, having uh, you know, set his life on the hope that Jesus was the king, that Jesus is the king who's bringing that kingdom, 
looks around and he looks at the prison that he finds himself in and says, something doesn't add up here, right? Because of what I know, because of what I believe about God, about his Messiah, about the world, my experience doesn't measure up to my hopes, One of the great um, explanations of the kingdom and all the prophets is in Isaiah chapter 61, right? It was this section of, of the prophet Isaiah's scroll that Jesus himself stood up and read in the synagogue in Nazareth. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, in the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when Jesus read that in the synagogue, he said, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And so if you're John and you go, okay, sweet. Isaiah 61, freedom for the prisoners, liberty to the captives. Well, why am I a prisoner? And why am I a captive? The problem of suffering Right, the questions that it leads us to ask, the whys, why do we suffer in this world? Right, if, you're, if you have a purely naturalist view of the world, if, if we're all alone on this planet and there is no God, suffering really isn't a question. Right? Suffering is what you would expect to get out of life. Right? To live is to suffer, survival of the fittest, the strong make it out. Suffering is everything, and all we have to do is endure it because we're ultimately alone. So apart from God, suffering is a, it's a problem in that it's something to be endured and nobody particularly enjoys it, but it's not, a, it's not a challenge on an intellectual level. It's just what we would believe in a natural world. If, however, you believe that there is a God, the God of the Old and New Testaments, a God who's revealed to us, is both incredibly benevolent, all-loving, all-good, and all-powerful, then all of a sudden, suffering does create a crisis, right? It creates that moment where you go, how, why? If that's who God is, why do we suffer in this way? Why is he allowing this to happen in our lives? And now, you know, if we're honest, the scriptures spend far less time than I would like them to explaining that. There's far less in the Bible that deals with these big philosophical questions. Now, there's stuff, right? We do have a picture of a God who is always good, who's eternally gracious, eternally loving, eternally wise. But the question, when, when, this, when the biblical authors get to dealing with the problem of suffering, the way they attack it isn't so much how could, why could God allow this to happen? Instead, the angle they usually take on the problem of suffering isn't why is it happening, but what is God going to do about it? They seem far more interested in dealing with the givenness of a broken world, right? That because of sin, because of, of the chaos that sin unleashed in this world, things are not the way they're supposed to be, right? Things, we have things like famine and warfare, We have things like divorce and cancer and genetic abnormalities, right? If life existed in its Edenic pre-fall state, the words genetic abnormality would never have entered into the human vocabulary. Neither would the words orphan or divorce or cancer or war. 
But the world we live in is not the way that it's supposed to be. But God is not content to leave this world, filled as it is, with his image bearers who he loves. He was not content to leave us in our state of brokenness and sin and sorrow. But he was resolved to do something about it. And that is the storyline that drives the psalmist's prayers. It drives the prophet's hopes. It drives the New Testament teaching about what Jesus is here to do. Right, that he hasn't come to explain away our suffering, but that he's come actually to heal a suffering world, to bring justice to a sinful and broken world, and to make all things new. And so John knows this. He, in fact, uh, said that Jesus is this one. His entire ministry, his entire life was geared around one thing, which was pointing away from himself towards Jesus. Remember the great uh, quote of John, I must decrease that he might increase, right? His entire life was pointing to Jesus saying, this is the king. He's the one who's come to finally deal with evil and suffering and death. And so we can appreciate when John hits this moment where he says, so what gives? Was I wrong? Right? When I baptized him and I thought I heard a voice and saw a dove and he came out of the water, was I wrong? When I pointed to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, did I get my signals crossed? Are you the one who is to come? Are you the one who's going to do all of these things? Or should we expect someone else? It's the question that our suffering brings us to. Jesus, are you really the one? Right? Are you the one? Or Can we place our hopes in you? Can we place our faith in you? Can we trust in you in the midst of all of this that you really are the one, that your promises aren't empty, that you are who I've believed you to be? Are you the one who's the answer to all of these questions? And so John asks, and he sends some messengers. And it's worth looking at this question. We looked at what John knows. Let's look at what John asks. The question, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? John knows that this is the only question that really matters. Jesus, are you the one? Are my hopes secure in you? Notice what John doesn't ask. He doesn't ask the question that I usually ask in my suffering, and the question that over you know, pastoring people for all these years that most of us normally ask. Most of us, when we're in the midst of suffering, usually come to Jesus with some version of the question, if you are the one, fix this, right? If you are the one, heal my daughter. If you are the one, let me get a negative CAT scan. If you are the one, help me get this job promotion to get out of this dead-end job. If you are the one, be with me in this broken marriage, And on the other side of that, of that if-then approach to Jesus, there's a great big, and if you don't, then I'll know you're not the one, right? If you don't fix my suffering, if you don't alleviate my pain, then I'll believe that my faith was empty and it was all in vain. Most of us approach Jesus, you know, the the stories of the crucifixion in all of the gospels, Jesus is crucified between two criminals, In one of the criminals, uh, we remember his final words to Jesus, right? Remember me. 
when you come into your kingdom. But the other criminal also speaks. We might call him the mocking criminal. And remember what he asks? He says, if you're really the Christ, get us off these crosses. Right? If you're the Christ, intervene. And it's a question that's rooted primarily in doubt. Right? It's a question that says, I'm the one with the right to judge whether you have measured up to the job description of what I believe the Savior ought to be doing in my life and in the world. But that's not the question that John brings. His only question is, are you the one? Are you the one? Right? If you're the one, I can suffer anything and know that hope is not lost. Right? If you're not the one, I need to figure out a way to get out of prison. Right? If you're not the one, then I'm on my own and I got to figure out how to deal with this. But if you're the one, I can stay in prison. I can suffer humiliation. I might even have to give my life. But if you're the one, then I can trust you. I can trust you wherever you lead. I can trust you whatever you bring to me. If you're the one, I'm okay. If you're the one, I'm secure. Are you? Or should we be expecting someone else? Have you found Jesus to be the one? Right? If you haven't, you will go through your life searching for someone. For someone that you can say is enough to satisfy your needs, to answer your questions. As human beings, we seek after someone. Someone to trust in, someone to hope in. Jesus, the offer of the gospel is that Jesus offers to be the one. The one who is, as we celebrate at Christmas, God made flesh. Eternity come towards you. The offer, the free offer of communion with God forever. That can never be shaken through anything you do or anything you suffer. Right? It's been the, the way that Daryl and Tessa have revealed the gospel to me just in being their friends through this. Their question throughout it, I mean, maybe they've had it and haven't told me, but the question I've heard from them isn't, is Jesus really the one? It's been because Jesus is the one, we have hope. Because Jesus is the one, this little life has meaning and she has purpose. Because Jesus is the one, because we trust him with our lives, because we trust him with our baby, because we trust him with our days. There will be good days, there will be bad days, there will be joys, there will be sorrows. But if Jesus is the one, we can trust him and we can follow him. And he'll never leave us. If he didn't leave us on the cross, he won't leave us now. And so John asks, are you the one or are we still expecting someone else? And look at how Jesus responds. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. And the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Right? So, look, Jesus doesn't spend a whole lot of time making a theological case for himself. He says, look around. Look at what you see. That guy was blind, and he sees now. That little girl over there, she was dead, and she's alive now. That, these poor tax collectors and sinners who are excluded from every corner of life. Now they have purpose and family, right? Tell John what you see here. 
that the kingdom is breaking out in this broken world. No, not fully, right? There's still prisons. There are still blind people. There are still dead people. But where Jesus goes, there's this outbreaking of life. Right, if you know the, the stories of the Chronicles of Narnia, it's the way that C.S. Lewis depicts uh, the Christ figure, Aslan, moving into the world. Right, this world where it was perpetual winter. But wherever Aslan goes, spring breaks out, flowers bloom. is a sign that one day there will be a full thaw, that spring is coming. But in the meantime, there's these tastes of it. And so Jesus says, tell John what you see and what you hear. Tell him about the kingdom of God breaking out all around you. And he knows the Old Testament well enough. He knows Isaiah 61 well enough that he could look at what's happening and infer, oh, Jesus is the one. Brothers and sisters, one of the hard things about following Jesus in a world that is broken and that isn't what it will be or what it should be is embracing this idea that the kingdom of God, the world that Jesus is bringing, is both here and not yet here, right? That we do taste real moments of transcendent grace and joy and miracle and suffering and sorrow and longing at the very same time because we taste the kingdom, but as we remember at Advent, we wait for the kingdom. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is very close and we await our salvation. The whole world groans for what is coming. But the offer of Jesus in the midst of it, in the midst of a broken world, is that you can taste life with him, that you can taste life with God by faith. And then Jesus ends, verse 6, tell John everything that you see, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's an odd way to end. Right, tell them about the resurrections and the healings and all this great stuff. And blessed are you if you're not offended by me. What is so offensive about Jesus? What's so offensive about his message? Right, there is the, the entryway into faith, the entryway into life with God is accepting a rather offensive statement about you. Right, it's to admit that you're a sinner. Right, Jesus, his message fundamentally is that the biggest problem in your life isn't your suffering, it's your sin. Right, the biggest problem isn't, the, the, isn't what you have to endure, it's the problem that's within you. Right, your own suffering that you provoke in your own life and in the lives of others because of your waywardness from God. And that is, if we're honest, a little bit offensive. Right? When, when Daryl and... I, I imagine somebody recorded the baptism. Right? Years from now, when they look back on the baptism, they're going to be reminded that right there in this incredibly beautiful moment that they took a vow in which they said that this precious little baby girl is a sinner in need of a savior. Right? She's not just a sufferer in need of alleviation of her suffering. She's a sinner in need of a savior. Daryl and Tessa, love them to death, Sinners. Right? We're all sinners in need of a grace beyond ourselves. And so Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Blessed is the one who doesn't hear that and say, Jesus, you have no right. Who made you king to tell me I'm a sinner? But to not be offended means to say, Jesus, you know what? You're right. You nailed me. 
Because on the other side of that, Jesus says there's blessing. On the other side of that, there's grace and forgiveness and life. To, to receive the offense is repentance, to say, Jesus, you're right. To receive Christ is faith. Jesus, cover me, heal me, forgive me. That's what John needed. Remember, John said, this is the one, behold the Lamb of God, the one who would suffer and die, lay down his life to take away the sin of the world. Not to answer all of our questions, not to alleviate all of our suffering, but to take away every single bit of our sin to do with it what the psalmist said is to separate it as far from us as the east is from the west so that no longer are we defined before God as guilty sinners but as beloved sons and daughters, his children now and forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you uh, in the midst of our questions. Lord, I don't know the questions of every mind and heart in this room, but I know that to be human is to have questions. To be human is to wrestle with doubt. Uh, it's to suffer and to wonder why. It's to pray in the night and wonder if anyone hears. And so, Lord, in the midst of our questioning, in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our suffering, Lord, help us to come to you and not run away from you. Uh, Lord, you came towards us in the incarnation. You came towards us in your life. You came towards us supremely at the cross where you didn't explain away our suffering, but you took it on yourself. You entered into it. You suffered and you died for us so that in this life, though we suffer, we can know that we're loved. And in the life to come, we can know that all of our punishment has been laid on our substitute. Uh, we can know that, that the tears of this life will be dried by the scarred hands of our Savior. And so, Lord, until then, help us to live uh, by faith in your grace and in your goodness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at Christchurchintown.org.